How big of a role should soil types and the productivity index play in land values? Well, stay tuned to the latest Well-Grounded podcast to find out. This is Randy Conan from the Red River Farm Network. And this is Jason Menke, farmland and beet stock broker at Acres and Shares. This podcast brings together experts from the world of agriculture and real estate. We'll talk farmland values, industry trends, and the economy. In this edition of Well-Grounded, our guest is David Franzen. He is a professor of soil science and an extension soil scientist specialist at North Dakota State University in Fargo. He received his BS, MS, and PhD from the University of Illinois. Previously, Dave worked in industry as an agronomist, manager of a train of retail fertilizer outlets in Illinois, took uh, took his uh, present position at NDSU in 1994, and has conducted research in site-specific nutrient management, crop nutrient rate recommendations, and soil health erosion prevention. Welcome, David. Good to be here. Let's start a little bit more, Dave, by talking about your role at NDSU Extension. When I first started out in 94, I was the only soil specialist. And then, thankfully, about um, oh, about 10 years ago, uh, Dr. Abby Wick joined us as a soil health specialist. So I work with her on, on soil health things that overlap in the soil fertility and, and vice versa. But uh, they allow me to do research, even though I'm 100% extension. So I've had uh, quite a bit of research over the years in, in different things. Back when I started in the land business in 2000, we had those big, thick soil books from the counties we did business in. Uh, I say this kind of tongue-in-cheek, but I'm, I'm guessing maybe your your uh, department still has an entire library of those soil books, Dave? Well, I, I know we used to, but frankly, if I had to find one right now, I'm not sure I could. It's, they're probably stashed away someplace. But the reason for that is that the NRCS, the Natural Resource Conservation Service, have put a lot of funding and, and resources into uh, their web soil survey. So at least in our area, our states, and, and really most of the cultivated land in the United States, uh, you can just Google NRCS web soil survey and click on the big button and uh, zoom in. It's a geographic information system. And so it's like Google Earth. You can just zoom in to the tract of land that you're that you're looking at, you can draw a polygon around it and uh, then click the soil map and the soil map will come up and uh, then the soil series will be over on the left-hand side and there's a, if you click on one, it'll it'll give the complete description of that soil survey for that soil series. Uh, So you don't need the books anymore. I don't think I've used a book for, gosh, six, seven years now. They were quite intimidating back in the day. I was uh, I was sure happy around 2004. There's a Grand Forks based company called Agridata. They released their surety custom mapping, and man, that sure made it a lot easier for a lot of us folks in the egg industry, including uh, farm real estate. Yeah, and the other thing that that happens when you have the books is what do you do if you have a if you have a farm and there's pretty good sized farms these days. That, that border a county and we're border, border a state here in Fargo. Of course, you know, people farm both sides of the river. Uh, you, have to, you have to go to a different library to find a different book, but now you don't. Uh, you can just make your area of interest both sides of the river or both sides of the county and, and it brings the soil series right up. 
How accurate were those maps, uh, whether it's public or private? Uh, where did that information come from? Well, there's two two layers of answer on this one. So the first first answer is that for site-specific farming, they're not accurate enough at all. For uh, evaluating a piece of land and getting uh, just a, a, a first-hand bit of information about it, about how productive it might be, then I, I think it's I think it's pretty decent. But the other part of that is is that some of these soil surveys were done, I don't know, twenty years ago, thirty years ago, something like that, before uh, the current wet period happened, and the the wet period increased the amount of salts in certain fields and in certain soils. And so, uh, for example, a pretty productive soil around here, it's called a Bearden. And if you look 30 years ago, the Beardens uh, were very highly productive, but some of those Beardens now uh, have become so saline that, that they're, not, they're not all that productive at all. They probably have half the productivity or less, depending on what crop you decide to, to plant. So, so you can't, in this area anyway, I, I think if, if you went to Illinois, Iowa, you know, all, all the states to the south and the east of us, you'd have a pretty good idea what the productivity is. And it changes a little bit, but not all that much. But here, the productivity of certain pieces of land can change hugely over a 25, 30-year period. One of the other tools with AgriData that's been, that's been helpful, in addition to the soils maps and, and kind of tying into what you just mentioned, Dave, is... They now have, and, and here again, it's it's USDA satellite imagery, but they've got crop history maps on there. So it's it's kind of nice to take a look at those soils maps, and then, you know, based upon uh, surface drainage, subsurface drainage, you can kind of see if there's if there's any issues going on, including you know saline, which which you had mentioned. Is that kind of like the yeah. productivity index? So that there's a there's a soil map that has the productivity index and kind of rates that out, and then. In addition to that, another layer they have, um, and I'm, I'm sure this is available at a website as well, uh, but Agridata just puts it all together in one spot. But it it, it takes the sat satellite imagery and kind of shows the crop history on there. So if there was wheat or sugar beets, uh, dry beans, etc., and it'll show if there's any gaps in there. So if there's a the crop wasn't growing, etc., it's it's pretty handy tool. Does the productivity index play a role in land values? Yeah, a absolutely. In fact, um, you know, in the farm real estate business, over the last 10, 15 years, um, and, and most, I think all the companies use the, the surety maps, um, but they've really become, uh, a lot of people have put a lot of weight into the productivity index. So Dave, could you take a minute to just kind of explain productivity index and, and PIs um, for starters? Yeah, so 40 years ago, there was actually somebody at NDSU that that had to have time. He was a soil survey person uh, during the time that that all that garrison diversion project was going on. That NDSU hired quite a few soil survey people to help with that. But anyway, half time that was that was his job was to go out in the field, take some subsamples of dirt and certain certain soils, and and really get a pretty decent idea of what the productivity of these certain soils were. But when he retired, it all went away. And so ever since then, it's just been, for lack of a better term, uh, kind of a scientific guess, and that's that's all it is. And and so certainly it has value if you have a soil that has a, a big-time sodium problem, and we have some of those scattered around. Uh, 
the productivity index is, is going to be very low and, and it's probably grandfathered into what Patterson did, you know, 40 years ago, but, and, and then other, other, other soils are going to be uh, a lot higher because they don't have those kinds of issues. But, but again, those things change. And so I like what you said, and I, I do that same thing. I went up uh, toward Devil's Lake here a couple weeks ago, uh, looking at a piece of land and the I knew what the soil series were, but I really didn't know how the how the weather, how the rainfall has changed it over the years. And so that's exactly what I did. I went actually, I just went to Google Earth and and looked at last year's picture, and you could see the saline areas and in, in the soybeans or the wheat or whatever was growing out there. You you could see those areas that were hurt, and so you you knew that maybe those lines on the original map aren't aren't totally correct that the that the poorest soils have kind of bled into the good soils over time. So, so using both of those resources is, is a really good thing. And just knowing that soils change over time and they're not, not going to be permanent. Is there a, a proper way or best way to do to analyze those maps and PIs? Probably the best thing to do would be to, if you, if a person isn't really too familiar with soils and relative productivity and, Especially in this reason, let's just say that you're that you live in Chicago and and you're looking at land maybe in this area because it's insanely expensive in central Illinois, uh, and but you're really not sure. Uh, hiring a, a certified uh, soil soil scientist would be a really good thing to do, and uh, considering the amount of money that's in land these days, it's a pretty cheap way to figure out if if the land is really going to be productive or not. I mentioned in the in the intro really the question was you know is the 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 PI playing too big of a role right now do you think in in land values or it kind of needs to be just part of the the mix in in doing due diligence Well if I was looking for a piece of land it would only be part of it. It, it I wouldn't I wouldn't it's not gospel it's a guess people think because there's a number there that that, that it's uh, I don't know been certified by some some entity somewhere and but it's not it's just a guess and so you have to go into it knowing that it's just a guess uh, on a relative scale it's probably decent but to to look at a piece of land and and think that you know, most of it is in the in the 90 percent compared to something that's in 75 is it really i don't know it may be or, or it may not be the difference might be even larger than that or there might not be very much difference anymore at all an interesting example would be just kind of on the edge of the Red River Valley. I, I think of in, you know, uh, maybe Walsh or or Grand Forks County. You know, you could get a Lankin loam that has a PI in the 80s or 90s, but it's got rock on it, and then you've got like a Winemere Tiffany soil um, that's maybe in the in the 70s, but it's it's great potato land, and uh, you know, so that that can easily you know miss red for sure. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, over the last 20 years or so, the amount of land that's been tiled is huge. And so that's really improved the productivity of some soils that, uh, by the soil survey, really don't look all that great. Well, is there a way to summarize uh, the main soil profiles in, in the valley? Summarizing in it like one size fits all is is, is unfair. But they, they have the potential to be, be very productive. But that specter of salts uh, is always behind the scenes. 
And, and also, especially in the Northern Valley and especially in potato country, the amount of soil we've lost over just the last 20 years has really been spectacular. And so there's some areas around Grafton, for example, that you can see the subsoil. You, you don't see black anymore when you look across the field. You can see white or yellow or something like that. It's uh, re really kind of appalling. So uh, 20 years ago, maybe 30 years ago, when the soil was mapped, it was pretty, pretty productive. Now it just... It takes more fertilizer to grow a crop, the crusts, it has issues, all kinds of issues. So knowing, knowing what the tillage history has been, uh, knowing what, uh, what care the, the people have taken to maybe use cover crops and save the soil that we have, actually walking out there and uh, with a shovel or something and taking a look and see if there's any topsoil left or not. Uh, all of those things are important if I was buying a piece of ground to be productive. If I'm just buying a piece of ground to put a hunting lodge on, then it really doesn't matter. But if you're wanting it to be productive, you have to think about all those things. Good example, Dave. I had a listing a few years back west to Grafton, uh, same township as the first $10,000 an acre sale in North Dakota. I was licking my chops because it, you know, it wasn't Glendon, but it was, it was beard and soil. And uh, thought it would be a slam dunk, and it was exactly as you had mentioned. Uh, those profiles weren't there anymore, and I had a heck of a time trying to get it sold. You know, because the local farmers they've they've watched this thing over the years, and and they know what's what's good and what's not. It's not as simple as just looking at the maps and 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 saying that this is this is the way it's been and this is the way it is right now. It you need to put a little bit more work onto it because the soils change over time. On the other hand, if you get a piece of ground, and, and there's quite a few pieces of ground around the state and around the region that, that have been no-till for a long, long time, those, those farms have really been built up. I know, I know one that, gosh, it has organic matter content, 65 7.5%. Uh, it doesn't take hardly any nitrogen at all to grow a 200-bushel corn crop. It, it's a completely different piece of land than what lays right across the road and the person that's clueless that, that tills it all the time. So, so if you look at somebody that's really taking care of a piece of ground over the time, the value of that is a lot higher than what that soil map shows. So what I'm hearing you saying, actually, is there, way, there is a way to, to build these soils back up. Oh, yeah. There's poster, poster children all over the state of soils that have come back, uh, not maybe the prairie level, but they've certainly at way, way more productive than they were 40 years ago, 50 years ago, when, when people started uh, no-till or some sort, some kind of no-till to, to improve them and stop the soil loss. Dave, we have a lot of, uh, in, in the valley and, you know, just outside of the valley, there's a lot of uh, clay soils, loam soils. Um, could you just briefly elaborate on, on the loam soil and clay soil, and if you have a a preference of, of what you know you'd have on a farm yeah so the, the really really high clay soils the ones around 50 percent and above higher they tend well they are they're the closer you get to the red river or the closer you get to the stream in the system the higher clay content you have and as you feather out 10 20 30 miles or something like that the, you get less clay uh, the sand is still tends to be fairly fine and, and, and unless you get up into the beach ridges. But um, well, that's kind of, kind of how it works. Closer you are to the river, the higher clay. And those are hard to, hard to manage. You, you, they're, they're forgiving 
uh, if you have to mud in one year to get a crop out, uh, you know, you would think that maybe it'd be 10 years before the farm would be productive again, but you can go back the next spring and, and you can put a hand into the, into the soil up to, you know, halfway up to your elbow and they, they heal themselves. But spring, spring compaction is always kind of an issue with them. So they're harder to manage. And as soon as they start getting, getting wet, then it starts to, uh, coat the, coat your cedar coat your tillage tools, uh, it, um, it's really hard to get off. As soon as it dries, you can kind of hit it and it all falls off. But when it's wet, holy cow, it's, um, it's like glue. So you have to watch that. And what, But once you get like over in a bearden, which is about 30, 35% clay, then you don't have quite, quite as much of an issue. And the more loam you have, the more forgiving it is at least to plant and do some do some different tillage and field operations. If someone was trying to want to buy land, is there one soil type that's preferable over another? Well, um, if uh, if I had a section of Gardena, I'd I'd quit my job and and uh, that'd be it. Uh, so there's a few few soils around that are just wonderful. The other one in the valley would certainly be you know Glendon. Um, if guys have beets and potatoes, there's not many of those guys who still have that balance. But, you know, you've got that loam soil, but yet it's uh, it's conducive enough for, for sugar beets as well. Yeah, and it has, it has a high carbonate content, which means that the soil will fall off the, the potatoes a lot better than soils that don't. Like, for example, around the Fargo area, of course, you have Fargo, the Fargo soil, with a little bit of Hegney, which is its calcium carbonate. Uh, rich uh, sibling, and but if the Fargo North, when you get get in the valley, you you'll find fields that are mostly Hegney with a little bit of Fargo, and that's preferable because the Hegney with all the calcium carbonate in it, uh, it the the clay particles uh, just kind of fall apart uh, off, of, you know, so you don't get as many clods in with the in with the real potatoes as as you would if you came down here to Fargo and started farming. So I think that's why the potato industry concentrated in the Northern Valley because the, the soils are, are higher in carbonate. And that's, that's, that's what the Glendon has with it too, because it has carbonates up the surface. So it's a really nice potato ground. But the other side of that coin is, is they blow, they, they blow really bad. And so thinking about how you're going to control that with cover crops and, and residue in the system, that that's pretty important to get, to make sure that that soil is going to be productive for a long time. I'm not sure if this is an old wise tale, but I've, I've heard it said, Dave, that uh, the Red River Valley has some of the most productive, uh, most fertile soil in the world. Um, is, is that true? It was in 1880. <laughs> no, I'm serious. No, if you look at the old 1900, and these a lot of these are scanned and are online, you can look for them, but they'll, they'll know... They'll melt topsoil with over 6% organic matter down to at least two feet and sometimes three feet. If we had those today, we wouldn't need any fertilizer at all. We wouldn't. We wouldn't need a speck of fertilizer. And, and that's why when they were first plowed up that you had 70 bushel wheat yields along the Cheyenne River and fields out of Jamestown were growing 40 bushel wheat. And this is when the planters were just, you know, next to junk and they had 
maybe semi-adapted wheat seed and all those kind of things and and still grew tremendous crops with not a drop of fertilizer for a long time and until a lot of the soil blew away in the in the 30s and and uh, in in many areas of the state it continues to this day so areas that areas that had two three feet of topsoil now are living with no topsoil they have two percent organic matter um, and because that's what the subsoil was down to about three four feet back in 1880 but mostly farming subsoil in a lot of the state Dave, one of the questions I get asked occasionally is, you know, if, if we look at the peak of land values in in uh, the Red River Valley at, say, $12,500, $13,000 per acre, per tillable acre, and then you see some areas down in, in Iowa that are that are 20000 plus, you know, what's the difference between, between that Iowa-Illinois market versus, you know, uh, eastern North Dakota, northwest Minnesota? Yeah, so the differences are really stark. So to, for one thing, we have a shorter growing season, and I think everybody understands that. And so we lose at least a month compared to states that are five, 600 miles south of us. So that's the first thing. The second thing is salts. I had a colleague from Missouri come up here uh, doing a multi-state study, and, and they ran a, a various uh, electrical conductivity detector, and one of the things that detects is is salt. So I get this phone call and he says, Dave, I can't use either one of these sites. They have salts in them. I just laughed. I said, so you could go to 98% of the fields in North Dakota, you're going to find salts or, you know, that's just the way it is. And so the salts, even if they're what we consider low, uh, people in Iowa and Illinois would be appalled, you know, that, that it's, you know, it cuts about 10% off the yield right off the bat. So that's, that's the other thing. And the, and, and those are, and those are big things. It, it, the, the salts are so prevalent in this area that it's unusual to have full productivity uh, in a whole quarter. You, you might have really good productivity in maybe 140 acres out of the 160, but there's 20 acres that are going to be just kind of not all that productive. Uh, not because they're bare, but because the yields have just been stunted. You can see it going alongside the road, how the, how the field kind of the height difference between the fields, you can see it in the satellite images. In Iowa and Illinois, you don't have that at all. If you have a quarter quarter section and and it's a square quarter section, you can expect similar yields from fence row to fence row, north and, north and south, east and west. It's not that way up here. So both of those things, shorter growing season and the prevalence of salts are, are huge differences from what we are in the, in the central corn belt. If if we grew 300 bushel corn up here, they'd be growing 450 down in Illinois. Is that one of the reasons we're seeing guys even drain tile, you know, some of their better land? Oh yeah, because any any amount of salts, as far especially uh, with corn and soybeans, but really almost all the other crops. I mean, the 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 old the old description of salt and effect of salt showed that there was a threshold salinity, but I don't think that exists from the data I've seen on wheat and barley, things that are pretty tolerant to it. You have some effect, even at very pretty, at, at, at very low levels. It is always have some effect. It's not a lot, but it's some. So yeah, I, yeah, that's, that's certainly it. And, and the other thing for the drainage is just 
a little a little bit earlier start in the spring and ability to do more timely field trips during the middle of the season where before you get a wet period you have to wait till everything kind of dry out because you know how our rain comes in the summertime it comes in about four inch four inch dumps you have to get rid of it any explanation for the for the salts that have come in yeah so you know they've always been here our groundwater uh, we have groundwater all over the state but you know that only certain areas are irrigated uh, only certain aquifers uh, have pretty low salt content the rest of them have pretty high so anytime that you have enough water that the water table moves within Oh, in a beard, and gosh, if the water table moved within eight feet of the thir- surface, there'd be enough capillary activity to have salts come right to the surface, and the water evaporates, and the salts are left behind. So it, they're always they're always here. They're always going to be here. Even if you tile, the salts are still lurking underneath it, and and so if a tile gets plugged some day, um, those salts will kind of emerge during a during a wet period. Uh, so maintaining the tile, not just putting it in, but maintaining it, making sure it's free. That, all that's important also. Dave, anything we haven't covered here or any closing comments from you? Well, I think, I, you know, it's, 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 it's encouraging to hear you talk about that piece of ground up in, up in Park River because I... There's a lot of reasons why people buy land. You know, they'll, they'll buy land so somebody else doesn't get it. They buy land because they've looked at it all their life and they kind of want it. Um, and, uh, and and so there's emotional reasons and all kinds of reasons why a person wants to buy a piece of land. But but at, at, at the end, I think that the productivity should matter a lot. And and so it's uh, it's good that people are thinking about the soils and how to look at the soils, taking a look at that web soil survey, taking a look at, at satellite images to see really how the fields go, realizing that soils don't stay the same over time. Uh, they can be improved or they can be degraded. That's all important when you're trying to be a steward of the land or trying to buy a piece of land that's, that's going to make a person money over time. Thanks to Dave Franson for being part of this conversation. The Well-Grounded Podcast is a presentation of Acres and Shares and the Red River Farm Network. If you have farmland or beetstock questions, please call me at 218-779-1293. And you can find this podcast on iTunes, Google Play, and Spotify. It's also available at rrfn.com and acresandshares.com. Until next time, I'm Randy Conan. And I'm Jason Menke. 